right, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen Friday edition. Nothing to say about the weather today. It's just one of those days that there's really nothing to remark on. Uh, we got some politics stuff to talk about, and uh, the first subject I wanted to bring up, though, is sort of political in a sense, but it's also uh, very personal in a way, and I think Charlie's kind of a good person to talk to you about this because of his uh, particular background, which is growing up in the UK and spending a lot of time in Europe. You and I both get to work on trains. Uh, you take the Metro North from where you live in the suburbs, and I take the subway from downtown, and I used to have to take the same train that, that you did every day. And of course, Jack, our publisher, takes it from way the hell out. He's, uh, you know, two hours uh, each way every day. And it's just sort of terrible. It's, uh, it's a mess. It's unreliable. It's runs late. The New York City subways do the same thing. But the thing that's really bothersome to me about this is that they are uh, comparatively expensive compared to, uh, comparatively compared to, that's a very eloquent way to put that, uh, compared to their, you know, European counterparts, their Asian counterparts, you know, the Hong Kong subway famously turns a small profit and doesn't require the huge subsidies that we do. And of course, neither one of us has to take the Long Island Railroad, which is the real nightmare uh, train around here. So I'm trying to figure out, and this is sort of something that perplexes me, and I, I got into this a little bit a couple of weeks ago when I was writing about Monocle uh, magazine and their various public transit obsessions, is that, um, you know, people on the left really like uh, public transit, and some people on the right like it too, and I think there's a, a case to be made for mass transit, although I don't really want the government involved in it very much. But uh, I think it's a really good example of the fact that, um, you know, people on the left and these sort of, you know, urban, crunchy, soy latte, progressive types look at these European institutions, whether it's, you know, healthcare, whether it's uh, not being allowed to call your employees after six o'clock in France. And Germany, I think, actually, as it turns out, is the same way. Um, and they say, well, if we could only do what they do, then we would have the same sorts of things here. But, you know, when I compare these trains to what they look like in Zurich or even London, which isn't a great system, but it's not a terrible one. We aren't really good at doing European-style social welfare, uh, mass transit, and, uh, and other kinds of things here. So first of all, I'd like to hear about how nightmarish, if at all, your, uh, your ride-in was today. And uh, secondly, you know, why is it in the American context this stuff that we think we would like to do, at least some of us think we would like to do in the European way, just never seems to work? Well, America, I think, with transport, does the opposite of Europe, right? Which is that Americans transport goods um, by train, generally, and people by airplane. I think I'm right in saying in Europe, that tends to be the other way around. I think France, Germany, they move stuff by flying it, but they tend to move people on the trains. I should say that the trains run extremely well in Switzerland. But they don't run that well in England, even after privatization, and they're pretty expensive. It's, if you drive from where my parents live in Cambridge to London, even with the very high gas prices, <coughs> um, you'll be saving maybe 10, 15 pounds. So a ticket is almost twice as much as it would cost to drive hmm. to on the train. So, you know, it, it's not a very cost effective. It's an extremely useful way of going out for a boozy lunch because you can't drive, but uh, it's not a particularly economical way unless you're over 65 or you buy a, a season ticket or so on and so forth. But So I'm not sure England is a particularly good example. I mean, America, America has a number of factors that do not lend it to mass transit. The first is that it's very big and there are a lot of people here. You know, Canada is a very big country, but they're all 
close to the American border, and there aren't that many. Was it 35 million? Is that too low? 35 million people in Canada? Is that I don't know, but yeah, it's not very large. Australia is the same way, but you know, 310 million people in a very big country like this. Um, the, the second reason, I think, is that Americans are dispositionally individualistic, at least they have been historically, and I like to make the joke that uh, I don't like any form of transport on which I can't either choose the passengers or upgrade myself to get away from them, but there is at the heart of that an individualistic sentiment that I can get in my car and drive anywhere, I can just go and if I want to turn left, I can turn left, and if I want to turn right, and if I want to stop and, and if I want to go and visit a friend who lives in the middle of nowhere, there is really no limitation whatsoever. But a train is quite annoying. You probably have to get picked up from the station. You have to get a cab. They're late. And they're terrible. And Metro North in, on that, especially if it snows, you'd think you were living in. So people like the convenience. They like the individual nature of it. And, and I think that historically Americans forget that the railways that were put in were pretty much obsolete by the time they were finished. Yeah. And when we talk about internal improvement, there's this myth, really, that the last great, you know, American internal project, look at the railroads, but, you know, not really. <laughs> yeah, a lot of cronyism there, that sort of stuff. I, I've written this before that I think that the reason that trains naturally appeal to people who have a central planning mentality, because you tell your car where to go, but a train tells you where you're going, mm. you, know, you know, trains only go one place, and then they lend themselves to various kinds of you know, urban planning schemes from out there, from designing, you know, from around train stations, from around the tracks and things like that. But I think there's something else, too, that I think that it's um, it's for the same reason that government at all levels, it seems to me, in the United States is less effective than it is in lots of other comparable uh, countries. Not that there really are comparable countries. We're a very unusual country. And I think when people compare us to, say, Canada, it's always kind of silly because... As you pointed out, you know, we're an enormous, spread-out country with a big, diverse population, and they're not. Well, you're also, and, and I'm sure this is going to speak to what you're about to say, but you're also a country that was explicitly founded by a violent revolution and then justified with ideals. Yeah. And that does very much change the nature of the country, for example, compared to my own, which was a slow evolution. Yes, there was violence. Yes, there were civil wars. Yes, there was a glorious revolution. But... It was a very slow, gradual process, and our constitution and our institutions reflect that. In America, it is largely the product of a British culture, but it does matter that they overthrew the government yeah. and started, you know, and that does that informs the culture. I think. But if that informs the culture, then wouldn't you think that we would keep government that we have on a tighter leash and expect more out of it? You know, everything, if you look at, if you compare, say, Medicaid to the efficiency of not that they're ter terribly efficient, but just apples and apples comparison versus European systems that do similar things. We have a lot more uh, waste, a lot more fraud, a lot less efficiency. And, you know, you and I travel a fair amount. You notice this when you do things like when you go through customs at an airport. You know, Spain is not a famously efficient country, but going through customs and immigration in Madrid, uh, last time I was there, I timed it. I think it took me four minutes uh, last time I came through JFK in New York, it took me two hours, and that was me coming in, you know, as a national, whereas yeah. I'm going through Spain as a foreigner. Uh, you know, if you look at things like airport security in Amsterdam, and you wouldn't expect Amsterdam to be all that efficient. You know, everyone's kind of high and, uh, and well, Dutch and that sort of thing. No, but I, I think that the, the individualism of the country 
in some regards explains why the government is inefficient. I mean, for example, if you were to commit one hundredth of the Medicare fraud in a country like Singapore, you'd be executed. Now, yeah, literally. Now they're happy with that system. Singaporeans are are not, by and large, rising up. You, they don't talk with dewy eyes about Thomas Jefferson. They don't, uh, it, you know, put immigrants under flags and hand them cards and have people clap. It's just not that sort of country. There's no great American dream. They don't talk about the Statue of Liberty and that, um, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge. They just get on with it now. Uh, Americans simultaneously want some form of Medicare and Medicaid, it seems, but they also want to maintain a, a much more classically liberal culture. And a more classically liberal culture combined with a government program like Medicare is going to lead to fraud and abuse and waste and inefficiency and to the reluctance at, at its root to get on board with the sort of government control that does make these programs efficient. I mean, this is what uh, really, I think, is at the root of of the Obamacare question the left can't quite grasp or won't quite accept. Francis Fukuyama was astonished in the Wall Street Journal six months ago that Americans are still upset about this health care law and are still debating it five years later. And he said, well, nowhere else in the world would there be this level of individualized resistance to a government health care scheme. Nowhere else in the world would there be this level of resistance to uh, tightened gun laws or personal liability insurance that you are forced to get elsewhere. When I hear that, I think two things. I think, A, Frank Fukuyama, you're right. And B, you're welcome. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. But what I'm saying here, I suppose my point is when we, and this goes back to our talk about uh, epistemological differences, but, you know, culture, and I'll talk about guns, I suppose, with Switzerland and America, but culture really, really matters is what you're getting at. Yeah. So a single payer system in Switzerland or in France, the people of those countries have different expectations of citizenship. So they will say, oh, okay. Well, well, neither I will one of them up, has a single payer system, though, do they? Um, no, France has a single payer system with privatized hospitals. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Um, Britain has a single payer system with nationalized hospitals. Right. It's basically the world's oldest healthcare system, and and but let's not get into that. Yeah. Anyway, the the point I'm making is that we can talk about a single payer all day or Medicare all day and so on, but when you apply that to an American culture of individualism, you're just going to get a lot of pushback and a lot of frayed edges in the way that you don't in a country where people, frankly, fall in line. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you know this about me, uh, but you know, we've, we've traveled together some, so you know I have this, uh, I have this weird obsessive thing about uh, punctuality in in certain contexts. I mean, sometimes not in my National Review deadlines, but in other contexts in life I do. Uh, you know, I'm the guy who gets to the airport two hours ahead of time. I'm the guy who, you know, I obviously see a lot of plays because of my, uh, my uh, play reviewing gig, and I'm the guy who's always at the theater at least 15 minutes before, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, when I was in, in Switzerland last year, this is an enormously appealing place to me for a lot of ways because... It's great. You know, you get on a Swiss train and it says it's going to leave at 4.46. And it leaves at 4.46. Exactly. Not 4.45, not 4.48. There's no little, you know, window in there. It moves. And uh, so, you know, 
You know, you go to like even okay. You obviously understand why the sort of great capital cities are attractive when you visit them. You know, I mean, I've never been to Paris, but I understand why Paris would be attractive. I spent a fair amount of time in London. Now, tourist London, I assume, is not very much like living in London in the same way that tourist New York is not very much like living in New York. But you go to these, you know, sort of uh, second-tier European cities. Like I was in Stuttgart uh, last year visiting the Mercedes-Benz uh, factory there. Interesting place, by the way. And uh, but you know, you know, you see the trains, see that you sort of mass transit, the other sorts of things they have, and you get why a certain sort of American, particularly an American with a kind of progressive sensibility, looks at these cities and says, "Well, this is what we should do back home." And then I come back and I get on the Metro North and I say, if we tried to do that stuff back here in the United States, it just wouldn't work. And the thing that's really shocking to me about it is that I spent some time uh, a couple of months ago comparing uh, regional rail systems, you know, the subsidies and all that kind of stuff. And not only are ours worse, but they're a lot more expensive. Uh, they're not necessarily more expensive out of pocket, but they're more expensive once you figure in the subsidies. I think I remembered reading that the average trip on the Long Island Railroad, uh, and, and the tickets there aren't, aren't that cheap. I think it's like, you know, maybe 20 bucks to get out to a place I normally go out there. But there's like a $38 subsidy on top of that. So it's basically, you know, costing $60 to go back and forth in one little, you know, suburban region, uh, which is just, you know, absurdly inefficient. And then you start looking like, okay, these guys, you know them, the guys who tear your ticket and punch yeah. your little thing on the Metro North, those guys earn well into the six figures for punching pieces of paper. And uh, it's just all kind of absurd. And so what I, what I guess I'm wanting to draw out of that is that, you know, transit's one thing. And mass transit sort of makes sense in some urban contexts. In some places it doesn't. You know, it kind of makes sense in a place like New York. It makes maybe a little less sense in Washington. You know, I have some liberal friends down in Houston, and they're always, why don't we have a rail system here? I mean, because your population density is that of Mars, basically. <laughs> you know, you've got one person for every 10 square miles. You're not really going to have much of a subway there. So, you know, the mass transit thing is, is one thing, but then we start looking at, at these other European things that the American left wants to co copy, notably health care. Uh, you know, Obamacare is, to some extent, modeled on the Swiss system. It's supposed to replicate aspects of that with the various mandates and uh, subsidies for the insurance markets and all that. But you get the feeling that sort of just like our trains don't work the way there's our, uh, our version of Swiss healthcare is probably not going to look very Swiss at the end of the day. No, and you know, this is a, a pretty brutal thing to say, I imagine, but I think it's true that when an American tourist goes through France, for example, and says, oh, well, I wish the railways were like this, inherent in the statement is and I wish Americans were like the French mm. I mean Bill Maher for example makes no uh, doesn't hide this at all he said recently on his show that if we got rid of I mean I don't think he literally meant killed but he was lamenting that there are all these people in the middle of the country who are ruining it for him and he said we could be like Europe if it weren't for all of these Americans which you know it always it always amused me when we talk about Obamacare, for example, that one of the left's arguments is, yeah, well, look, this would work much better if the states would only play ball. Right. Well, that's a bit like saying, well, I'd have sold a million copies of my book if only Americans had wanted to read it. It's not <laughs> as if there was an instruction that came down and these governors and the, the citizens of the states that haven't played ball with Obamacare and refused to set up exchanges and haven't expanded Medicaid, refused and revolted and picked up arms and seceded. I mean, that was a choice that they were given in the law, whether they did that or not. Right. And so, 
you know, I think at the, at the root of it, Bill Bryson, the um, travel writer, sort of semi-jokingly says, and this is a common, he's not a Marxist, so don't think I'm saying that, but uh, this is a common Marxist complaint about um, communism not working, not having been tried properly. Um, but he does have a point, you know, if you were to try Marxism, you wouldn't have chosen Russia as the general line. And he says that the, the best country, really, to have tried it would have been England, because mm. people are comfortable with queuing, they will not grumble when they go without, they have an inbuilt sense of fair play, and it would have been a much better experiment. Now, I think it would have collapsed very quickly for all of the reasons that we normally talk about with Orwell and the latent British... Well, that was Marx's expectation too, wasn't it? That he right. he thought it would either be the United Germany States or, or Germany. Germany. Yeah. yeah, but you know, the the point is that communism, I think, is a terrible idea and always fails whenever it's tried. But it would have been different in different countries. And for example, you know, when when Adolf Hitler came to uh, prominence in Germany, then that Teutonic spirit, as Churchill put it, sort of showed itself. And yeah. you know, when Oswald Mosley marched through the streets of, of London, people laughed and. Had had the directives come down, exactly the same directives in London uh, to the local police stations and local army units uh, to do what the Germans did in that period, then there w- would have been just flat refusals from most of them because in the, it's in the British culture yeah. to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's an illegal order, sir. Um, you know, yeah, so I, this sort I, of I just want to interrupt you for a second. On the subject of Bill Maher, you brought up a couple of times, which, A, I think this means you watch too much Bill Maher. <laughs> And I think this is this is probably not good for you, and uh, we may have to have an intervention here. I mean, I know I know you do the show from time to time, so maybe you want to see what's going on. But got to watch this. But I did have to take him to task on something the other day. Speaking of these yokels in the middle of the country, where he was giving Alice Walton a hard time about the billion dollars the Walton family gave to open an art museum in yeah. Dale, Arkansas, and he made this you know snide remark about. Um, it being 500 miles away from the nearest people who wouldn't want to look at art. So I got thinking about that. I was like, I wonder what Bentonville is like compared to Los Angeles, where uh, Bill Maher is based. So not even accounting for cost of living differences. People in Bentonville make about a quarter more money than people in Los Angeles do, and they're a third more likely to have a college degree. So they're better educated and better off uh, than the average Angelina, and also better than the average New Yorker, which if you've ever been to Bentonville, this wouldn't surprise you. Uh, Bentonville has this weird little sort of mini Beverly Hills because Walmart basically requires all the people that do X amount of business with them to uh, have someone on the ground there in Bentonville. And right. Walmart's everyone's biggest account. So, you know, every major corporation uh, that sells retail goods through Walmart has people on the ground there. So Bentonville's actually a very, you know, well-off, highly educated, well-traveled sort of place. And I really dislike that sort of, you know, snide attitude about... Uh, right, but but you see why... They dislike those people oh, because yeah. those people are resistant to how they would like to run the country in a way that most other people's citizens simply are not. Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't just have to do with healthcare. It has to do with pretty much everything: religion, firearms, speech, schools, uh, civil society. Yeah, you know, and we got, it, we got into this a little bit yesterday. And I just, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but it just made me think of something. You know, we were talking about the firearms issue in the case of Switzerland versus the United States where the Swiss have just universal dangerous guns yeah. and no murders and we have you know various kinds of arms here and, and lots of things but you know that sort of chaotic element of our society the thing that I think is the reason that um, our local government offices and our national government offices work so poorly uh, the reason why we have so much crime versus other places that have even more guns than we do shows itself up in all sorts of ways in our culture. Uh, you know, if you look at things like how many Americans per capita die in accidents of all sorts, it's an elevated number if you look at automobile accidents. 
uh, it's really very high, yeah. uh, even when you control for uh, you know miles driven and that sort of thing. So while that sort of you know disorderly refuse to fall in line uh, culture has some really attractive elements, I think to it, like you know freedom and <laughs> self government and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there are, there are some downsides, and maybe sure. you know we don't think about those as uh, as much as we should. Well, there's certainly the consequences of liberty. And, and and the consequences of liberty, as with anything, are not always positive. And this this brings us back to our discussion of free speech and of at will employment. Yeah. You're going to get some negative, indefensible, ugly outcomes. You right. know, the United States allows neo Nazi groups who say the sorts of things that would strip paint off of a wall uh, anywhere in the world, not just in America, and they are, as I think they should be, at liberty to do that, but that doesn't mean that people don't get hurt or upset yeah. in the process. It's true, of, it's true of guns, it's true of boats, it's true of giving people more of their own money, it's true of letting them live. I mean, again, with, with Bill Bryson's book, he discusses there's an area, and you'll tell me what it's called, I, I'm sure, in Pennsylvania, where the the coal underground is, is, has been on fire for sixty years. Oh yeah, years. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the the ground at the top is is very weak now. Now people live around this area, yeah. and in any other country in the world, he points out, the residents would just have been forced to be moved out by the government because yeah. it's incredibly dangerous. But there are still people who are living on top of it. Uh, because the government can't do that in the United States and the people don't expect them to be able to do that in the United States. And so they just said, no, I'm staying where I am and I'll take that risk. Yeah. Now, is that a good thing? Well, the outcome's not very good, but it, the property rights that leads to that outcome are defensible. Yeah, and I think some of the benefits are um, are sometimes underappreciated. Like, are you familiar with a guy named George Lincoln Rockwell? No. He's our Roderick Spode. Uh, so George Lincoln Rockwell was this guy back in the... I guess he got started in the 60s and was was really active in the 70s. And I believe his, his outfit was called the American Nazi Party or the American National Socialist Party. And they wore, you know, Nazi uniforms and things like that. And they would hold rallies and things. And for a while, they were kind of a big thing. They had, you know, a bit of a following and did a lot of public stuff, got a lot of press. But, you know, the ultimate reaction here was the same as it was uh, with your Roderick Spode in... Uh, in Britain, which is that people just sort of laughed at them, and you know, no one really wanted to be affiliated with that. But I think that you know these sorts of really nefarious tendencies, you know, they're like mushrooms; they they grow in the dark. Mm. And once you you know force these things out into the light, it's really hard to build uh, to build that up. I think that, and this is an unkind comparison. I don't want to say that I think of of Occupy as being like the American Nazi Party, uh, although some elements certainly are, are that and more. Uh, but you know the those sorts of tendencies, I think the more you put them out in public, uh, the more you take these kinds of uh, ridiculous uh, positions and these kind of conspiracy-driven narratives and things like that, and let people actually see them, right. then, uh, you know, it's, it goes back to Milton and, and Aeropagitica and all that stuff, that uh, even though I have fairly little faith in people as voters, as citizens, Americans are, are pretty good, and they can look at this stuff and evaluate it, I think. And when you see the guy marching around in the German uh, army uniform, which you took that lovely video of, you know, I think that tells you a lot about what's going on there. Sure, sure. Um, I was amazed. East German. If you, yes. yes. 
He has this beautiful uniform. Um, <laughs> I, I was amazed when I was in Texas um, following Greg Abbott around uh, when he announced his campaign and went on a speaking tour last year to discover in the back areas where there is very little radio, only AM radio, that Alex Jones has a radio show yes. that is broadcast on the airwaves uh, and that he says all of the crazy, frankly seditious things that he does on his website over the air and that the American government not only doesn't do anything about it but allows him to lease the spectrum. Yeah. Now, to me, that Alex Jones is saying what he says. I mean, in the court, it's not just sort of moon landing type conspiracy. I'm glad you brought this up because you're going to get the email on this now and not me. Sure. But it's not just the moon landing type conspiracies. It's the... He threatened at one point that if anybody came anywhere near him and his family, he would start shooting them, and that includes cops and the government. He made all sorts of statements that in Britain would have got him immediately arrested and probably charged and convicted and imprisoned. Mm. I forget the details of them, but they were Looney Tunes. I wrote a piece about this. And yet I was absolutely thrilled. I I couldn't have been more thrilled to drive and listen to this for 20 minutes because what it told me was that I'm free. (laughs) The fact that he could do that meant I'm free. I can say what I like and nobody's going to come and knock on my door. And that's that's the beauty of this country, even if it leads to some peculiar peculiar outcomes yeah and i'm not i i mean i'm familiar with what alex jones's show is roughly although i've never i've never listened to it i was just wondering um his conspiracy stuff is it sort of like the traditional stuff where there are elements of you know anti-semitism to it and all that is, is he that sort of guy or is he just more of a there's a bit of everything yeah. there's a bit of everything it's he's he's his primary his primary idea is every news event is a false flag. I see. So 9-11, the Boston bombing. I think it was the Boston bombing that he was talking about. And he said, well, just as the government planned 9-11, they, planned, they planted this bomb. And, yeah, I mean, he, he he's off his trolley. But that's that's great. <laughs> you know? Well, the reason I was asking that is because, um, you know, I have a, a sort of a long-standing interest in some of this, you know, far-right uh, militia, you know, survivalist uh, kind of, Culture, and I think there's some some interesting stuff uh, that goes on over there. It's not really my particular point of view, but there's this one guy, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but he writes these uh, you know sort of crazy novels about uh, you know collapse of modern society and Americans fighting it out with the UN troops who are coming in to so impose the new world like order stuff. and all that. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. But what's interesting is that, um, and I read I don't know four or five of his his books. Is that um, you know this this kind of you know crazy French movement has been undergoing sort of a reformation in a sense this you know sort of a self-imposed uh, change and so I noticed that in all of his books there's you know a prominent Jewish character who's you know treated very well there's a couple of prominent black characters and there'll always be some discussion with some guy who used to be you know some uh, you know anti-Semite neo-Nazi type who you know, went to prison or met Jesus or something like that and has reformed his ways and now understands who the real enemy is, which is the United Nations, not, uh, you know, not your, not your Jewish neighbors. So there's maybe even some hope for that in that part of the world. You know, we were originally going to talk about Hillary Clinton today, <laughs> and I'm glad that we didn't. But um, 
because she's kind of boring and we'll have plenty of time to uh, talk about her. Although, just maybe as a note, we're talking about that sort of chaotic, unpredictable, unruly American culture. So she's now joined the Bush Club of having a shoe thrown at her uh, by someone in public. Not as quick on her feet as W was, I noticed. Uh, She was not quite as nimble. So do you think, what does that mean for 2016, Charlie? She's old. She's an old woman, and I think that her biggest enemy in 2016 is going to be... That noise you hear is the NSA tapping in because we're criticizing Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, <laughs> she is an old, older woman yeah. in a culture that, that celebrates youth. If she were elected president, she would be the second oldest, I think I'm right, president in American history. Now, older American presidents in the 20th century and 21st century... I presume will be the same, tend to survive. Ronald Reagan was, I think, 69 when he was elected. George H.W. Bush was pretty old as well. In the in the 19th century, they just died very quickly, very often in office or just after it. So it's not so much that her age is going to cause a national security problem, although I will note that that argument was thrown pretty hard at McCain. But she's going to have a problem standing next to a young person. Yeah, I think I think she could well win. I should put my cards on the table. Sure, I yeah. think she's extremely strong. But watching her react to the shoe just reminded me. It's a strange reaction, but that she's an older woman. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I can't say I have a great library in my mind of videos um, or experiences of people throwing shoes at younger politicians to compare her with. But the way that she acted is is how a grandmother acts, not yeah. how say a thirty five year old woman reacts. Yeah, you know, maybe we can close out with this, but I don't think it's going to happen, although I really hope that Elizabeth Warren will challenge her oh, in the uh, primary. If only because, you know, now I'm a, I'm a conservative and I'm sympathetic to the Republicans and um, may even go back to joining the party one of these days. And as much as I like guys like Mitch McConnell, you know, they're maybe not the most inspiring figures all the time, but if you had a couple of months of debate between Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren, on television, Republicans are going to look pretty cool sure. by comparison. <laughs> you know, pretty reasonable too. Pretty reasonable by comparison too. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, just as in many ways, uh, the Democrats' best friends have been the Republican opponents they've run against. I mean, I like Bob Dole, but Bob Dole was not going to beat Bill Clinton in any election, and John McCain was not going to beat Barack Obama. I mean, I think I could have beat John McCain that year, uh, probably. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's hope maybe they, uh, they get into it. And in a sense, you know, in terms of what people actually believe politically, I think Elizabeth Warren much better represents where the Democratic Party and the left really is right now. It, absolutely, but not where they need to say they are. Well, of course not. But you know, if we, we could have a really honest election, you know, sort of an Elizabeth Warren versus Ted Cruz or Elizabeth Warren versus Rand Paul. That would be, I think, refreshing and entertaining. We promised not to talk about 2016, but here we are again. It is inevitable. We've already run over half an hour, so we're going to do some kind of abrupt change today. Someone on Twitter was talking about our abrupt endings, and uh, he didn't like them. So uh, 